Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 9 of the Second Age of the Crusaders and the title is The Fifth Crusade, Defeat Snatched from Victory. Now, I think I've already said that the Fifth Crusade isn't often talked about, which is quite amazing really because it was probably the second largest military operation in the whole history of the Crusades after the First Crusade, which was a truly massive expedition the like of which had never been seen before in the Middle Ages. And another reason why I think it's so strange that the Fifth Crusade has been pretty much ignored, both by historians and filmmakers, is that it came very, very close to recovering Jerusalem. Indeed, as you've heard in the last episode, the Muslim world was so worried by the Fifth Crusade that Al-Kamil, the Sultan of Egypt, even offered to give Jerusalem back to the Crusaders if they left Egypt. I know this was probably partly a trick, to be honest, since he demolished the city walls so that they would have been impossible to defend, but never Nevertheless, it does show just how worried he was. And I think he was quite right to be so worried because by 1221, the army of the Fifth Crusade really was very large with over 50,000 soldiers, which was a massive force for the Middle Ages and larger, I think, than the Third Crusade, which is, of course, much more famous, really, because of the legendary story of Richard the Lionheart battling it out against the wise and chivalrous Saladin. But I think the Fifth Crusade is just as fascinating as the Third Crusade. And one of the reasons for that is that it was so nearly successful. So what went wrong? Well, as you'll hear in this episode, I think the real problem was poor leadership. And I think the real culprit was Cardinal Pelagius, who, as you heard in the last episode, was the Pope's representative who seized control of the Crusade, really, in the absence of a strong king like the German Emperor Frederick, who simply wasn't there. Now, Pelagius was a very energetic and enthusiastic person but he simply wasn't a soldier. And as you'll hear, this led to catastrophe. Indeed, it reminds me a little bit of the Byzantine defeat at Mansikert, which you heard about in earlier episodes, where the Emperor Romanus Diogenes was betrayed by a rival at the crucial moment in the battle which he was actually winning. And I think if a competent soldier, like, for example, Richard the Lionheart, had led the Fifth Crusade, it probably would actually have succeeded in conquering Egypt and retaking Jerusalem. Because one big difference between Richard and Pelagius was that Richard knew just how important it was to look after his soldiers. For example, you'll remember at the Battle of Arsouf, Richard refused to let Saladin draw his army away from the coast into the very hot Syrian desert, where his soldiers and horses would run out of water and be unable to fight, which was, of course, exactly Saladin's very clever strategy when he defeated the Crusaders at the crucial Battle of Hattin in 1187. And I'm afraid Pelagius didn't really understand these military tactics or what it took to be a good military commander. So without further ado, let's get back to the story of how Pelagius tried to lead the Fifth Crusade to victory. As before, I'll read extracts from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's brilliant History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. In 
In the year 1220, the army of the Fifth Crusade was in a powerful position, having taken Damietta and now ready to advance on Cairo, the capital of Egypt. But it was paralysed by quarrels between its leaders, Cardinal Pelagius, the Crusader King John, the military orders and the Italian city-states all had different objectives and wouldn't agree on what to do. Then, out of the blue, the best soldier, King John, decided to leave the crusade to travel to Armenia. For Leo II, king of Armenia, had died in the early summer of 1219, leaving only two daughters. The elder Stephanie was the wife of John of Brienne. The younger Isabella, daughter of Princess Sibylla of Cyprus and Jerusalem, was only four years old. Leo had promised the succession to his nephew, Raymond Rupin of Antioch, but on his deathbed he named Isabella as his heir. John at once put in a claim on behalf of his wife and their infant son, and in February, 1220, he received the Pope's permission to leave the Crusade and visit Armenia. He was on such bad terms with Pelagius that there was little point in his remaining with the army, over which the Pope now unequivocally gave Pelagius full command. John left for Acre, and as he prepared to sail for Cilicia, his Armenian wife died, it was rumoured, through his own ill-treatment. When their small son died a few weeks later, John had no further claim on the Armenian throne, but he did not return to Egypt. In March, al-Muzam invaded the kingdom of Jerusalem, attacking the castle of Caesarea, which had just been rebuilt, then moving to lay siege to the Templar stronghold of Athlet. Templar knights were rushed back from Damietta, and King John kept his army in the offing. The siege lasted until November, when al-Muzam retired to Damascus. Meanwhile, the Fifth Crusade remained stationary at Damietta in Egypt. There was some attempt to rebuild the town on the Feast of the Purification in February. The chief mosque was rededicated as the Cathedral of the Virgin. In March, a company of Italian bishops arrived, led by the Archbishop of Milan, and accompanied by two envoys from Frederick II. They brought considerable forces and at once agreed with Pelagius that an offensive should be launched. But the knights would not agree. King John of Jerusalem, they said, was the only leader whom all the nations would obey, and he was absent. When in July, Matthew, Count of Apulia, brought eight galleys sent by the Emperor Frederick, Pelagius again vainly urged action. Even his own Italian mercenaries turned against him when he suggested a separate expedition. The only enterprise to be undertaken, however, was a raid by the military knights on the town of Burlos, 20 miles west of Damietta. The town was pillaged, but the knights were ambushed on their return and several hospitallers, including their marshal, captured. Al-Kamil had by now recovered confidence. Though he was still short of land forces, he repaired his navy and in the summer of 1220 sent out a squadron down the Rosetta branch of the Nile. It sailed to Cyprus where it found a crusader fleet lying off Limassol and by a sudden attack sank or captured all the ships, taking many thousands of prisoners. It was said that Pelagius had been warned of the preparations made by the Egyptian sailors 
Caesars, but had ignored the warning. When it was too late, he sent a Venetian squadron to intercept the enemy and attack the harbours of Rosetta and Alexandria in Egypt, but to no effect. Lack of money prevented him from maintaining a sufficient number of ships of his own, and the papal treasury could not spare him any more. In September, more of the Crusaders returned home, but at the end of the year, Pope Honorius sent good news. Frederick had come to Rome in November 1220, and the Pope had crowned him and his wife Constance Emperor and Empress. In return, Frederick definitely promised to set out for the East on crusade next spring. Honorius had been growing distrustful of Frederick's promises and even advised Pelagius not to turn down any peace proposition from the Sultan without referring it to Rome. But the new emperor seemed now to be serious. He actively encouraged his subjects to take the cross and he dispatched a large contingent under Louis, Duke of Bavaria, which set sail from Italy early in the spring. The news of the Duke's approach so greatly elated Pelagius that when the Sultan offered peace terms in June, he forgot the Pope's instruction and refused them, only then reporting them afterwards to Rome. Al-Kamil once again had proposed the cession of Jerusalem and all Palestine apart from Outre-Jordain to the Crusaders, together with a 30-years truce and money compensation for the dismantling of Jerusalem. Soon after the terms were rejected, Louis of Bavaria arrived. Frederick had ordered Louis not to launch any major offensive until he should himself follow, but Louis was eager to attack the infidel, and when after five weeks there was no news of Frederick's leaving Europe, he fell in with Pelagius's wishes. When the Duke argued that if the reinforced army was to advance into Egypt, it must do so at once, for the time of the Nile flood floods was near, and when the legate declared that the army's finances necessitated speedy action, the leading crusaders were convinced. They only insisted that King John be summoned to play his part. There were a few dissenters. The Queen Regent of Cyprus wrote to Pelagius that a great Muslim army was being formed in Syria by al-Mazam and his brother al-Ashraf, and the military knights had the news confirmed by their brothers in Palestine. But Pelagius found in it another argument for an immediate advance. He had heard of prophecies that the Sultan's domination was soon to be ended. On the 4th of July, 1221, Pelagius ordered a three-day fast in the camp. On the 6th, King John arrived back with the knights of his kingdom, full of of pessimism, but unwilling to be accused of cowardice. On the 12th, the crusading army moved towards Fariscur, and there Pelagius drew it up in battle formation. It was an impressive host. Contemporaries spoke of 630 ships of various sizes, 5,000 knights, 4,000 archers, and 40,000 infantry. A horde of pilgrims marched also with the army. They, however, were ordered to keep close to the riverbank to supply the soldiers with water. A large garrison was left at Damietta. 
Meanwhile, the Muslim army advanced as far as Sharim Shah to meet them, but seeing their numbers retired behind the Bara Sigir running from the river to Lake Manzala and waited in prepared positions at Talka and at the site of the later Mansura on either side of the river. By the 20th of July, the Crusaders were in occupation of Sharim Shah. King John begged them to remain there. The Nile floods were due and the Syrian army was approaching, but Pelagius insisted on a further advance, backed by the common soldiers who had heard a rumour that the Sultan had fled from Cairo. Just south of Sharimshar, a canal came into the river from another branch. The Crusaders, as they pressed on, left no ships to guard its mouth, perhaps because they thought it not to be navigable. By Saturday the 24th of July, the whole Crusader army lay along the Barasagir facing the enemy. The Nile had risen now and the canal was full and easy to defend. But before it had filled too deeply, the armies of Al-Kamil's brothers had crossed it near to Lake Manzala and established themselves between the Crusaders and Damietta. As soon as there was enough water in the canal by Sharim Shah, Al-Kamil's ships sailed down it and cut the retreat of the Christian fleet. By the middle of August, Pelagius realised that his army was outnumbered and completely surrounded, with food that would only last for 20 days. After some argument, the Bavarians persuaded the command that the only chance of escape lay in an immediate retreat. On the night of Thursday the 26th of August, that retreat began. It was ill-organised. Many of the soldiers could not bear to abandon their stores of wine and drank them rather than leave them. They were in a drunken stupor when the order came to move. The Teutonic knights foolishly set fire to the stores that they could not carry, thus informing the Muslims that they were abandoning their positions. The Nile was still rising and the Sultan or one of his lieutenants gave orders that the sluices along the right bank should be opened. The water poured in over the low-lying lands that the Christians had to cross. They floundered through the muddy pools and ditches, closely pursued by the Sultan's Turkish cavalry and Nubian foot guards. King John and his knights beat off the former, and the military orders drove back the Nubians, but only after thousands of the infantry and pilgrims had perished. Pelagius on his ship was carried by the floodwater swiftly passed the blockading Egyptian fleet, but as he had with him the medical supplies of the army and much of its food, his escape proved to be a disaster. A few other ships escaped, but many were captured. On Saturday the 28th, Pelagius gave up hope and sent an envoy to the Sultan to sue for peace. He still had some bargaining assets. Damietta had been refortified and was well garrisoned and supplied with arms, and a strong naval squadron was in the offing under Henry, Count of Malta, and Walter of Palliar, Chancellor of Sicily, sent by the Emperor Frederick. But Al-Kamil knew that he had the main crusading army at his mercy. He was firm but generous. After wrangling over the weekend, on the Monday... Pelagius accepted his terms. The Christians would abandon Damietta and observe an eight-year truce to be confirmed by the emperor. There would be an exchange of prisoners on both sides. The sultan, for his part, would give back the true cross. 
Until Damietta should be surrendered, the crusade must hand over its leaders as hostages, Al-Kamil, named Pelagius, King John, the Duke of Bavaria, the Masters of the Orders, and 18 others, counts and bishops. He sent in return one of his sons, one of his brothers, and a number of young emirs. When the Masters of the Templars and the Teutonic Knights were dispatched to Damietta to announce its surrender, the garrison at first rebelled against the decree and attacked the the houses of King John and the Orders. Henry, Count of Malta, had just arrived with 40 ships, and they felt strong enough to defy the enemy. But winter was coming, and food was short. Their leaders were hostages, and the Muslims were threatening to march on Acre. The rebels soon gave way. After Al-Kamil had entertained King John at a splendid feast and had freely provided food for the Christian army, the hostages were exchanged back, and on Wednesday the 8th of September, the whole crusade embarked on its ships and the Sultan entered Damietta. The Fifth Crusade had ended in failure, but it had come very close to success. Had there been one wise and respected leader in the Christian army, Cairo might have been occupied and the Ayubite rule in Egypt destroyed, with a friendlier government set up there for the Franks could never have hoped to govern all of Egypt themselves, it would not have been impossible to recover all Palestine. The main blame must fall on Pelagius, who was a haughty, tactless and unpopular man whose faults as a general were revealed by the last disastrous offensive, while King John, for all his gallantry, had neither the personality nor the prestige to command an international army. Almost every stage of the campaign had been wrecked by personal or national jealousies. It would have been wiser to accept the terms twice offered by the Sultan and have taken back Jerusalem, but the strategists were probably right when they said that without the castles of Utrejordain, Jerusalem itself could never have been held, at least not so long as the Muslims in Egypt and Syria worked in alliance. As it was, nothing had been gained and much lost, men, resources and reputations, and the unhappiest victims were the most guiltless. Fear of the Christians from the West raised a new wave of fanaticism in Islam. In Egypt, despite Al-Kamil's personal tolerance, fresh disabilities were put upon the local Christians, both Melkites and Copts. Exorbitant taxes were levied, churches were closed, and many of them pillaged by the angry Muslim soldiers. Nor could the Italian merchants quite recover their former position in Alexandria. Their compatriots had encouraged the crusade. Though they returned to their counters, they could not be trusted so well. It It was with a shame that was bitter and well-earned that the soldiers of the cross sailed back to their own countries. They did not even bring back with them the true cross itself, for when the time came for its surrender, Al-Kamil said that it could not be found. Soon after the failure of the Fifth Crusade, King John went to Rome, where he claimed that in future any territory conquered by a crusade must be given to the Kingdom of Jerusalem. 
Pelagius protested, but the Pope agreed with John, and the German Emperor sent to say that he also approved. John then went on to France to visit once more his old friend King Philip Augustus. Meanwhile, Hermann of Salza put forward the suggestion that Queen Yolanda, who was the legitimate heir to the Kingdom of Jerusalem, should marry the German Emperor Frederick himself whose empress had died four months before, it would be a splendid match. In August the next year, Count Henry of Malta arrived at Acre with 14 imperial galleys to fetch the young queen, now aged 14, to Italy for her wedding with Frederick. On board was James, Archbishop-elect of Capua, who, as soon as he landed, married Yolanda as Frederick's proxy in the Church of the Holy Cross. She was then taken to Tyre, and there, being now held to be of age, she was crowned Queen of Jerusalem by the Patriarch Ralph in the presence of all of the nobility of Outremer. There was rejoicing for a fortnight. Then the Queen embarked, accompanied by the Archbishop of Tyre, Simon of Montgastal, and by her cousin, Balian of Sidon. She paused for a few days in Cyprus to see her aunt, Queen Alice, when the time came to part. Both queens and all their ladies were in tears, and they heard Yolanda murmur a sad farewell to the sweet land of Syria, which she would never see again. The emperor, with King John, awaited his bride at Brindisi. She was welcomed with imperial pomp, and a second marriage ceremony took place on the 9th of November, 1225, in the cathedral at Brindisi. It was there that King John abdicated his position as King of Jerusalem in favour of the German Emperor Frederick, who announced his intention to lead a new crusade to recover the city of Jerusalem and to make himself the new king of the East. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I'd be really grateful if you wanted to recommend it to a friend or leave a review. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear the strange story of what happened when the German Emperor Frederick tried to recover Jerusalem. <laughs>